Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we will continue our reflections into these special topics. This is Special Topic Thursday, an evening that is devoted to responding to your questions, an evening that is tailored to your questions. We are 10 years into Seeds of Truth radio programming, formerly known as the Catholic Hour, right? And I did want to set aside a day, an evening, to respond explicitly to your questions. I know I addressed apologetics over the span of about five, six months going through Scott Hahn's work, Reasons to Believe, but there were still so many other questions out there. And I wanted to set aside an evening and develop a queue, an archive that really did address all of your questions. Now, again, a lot of what I am getting is specific to those more classic apologetic questions. This evening might be a top three classic apologetic question because really it gets to the heart of the faith. What I'm responding to this evening, as I touched upon uh, the other day, is the question and questions surrounding the resurrection. How do we really know that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, how reliable are the gospel accounts? So those are the questions that we are going to take up today. As far as resources, I'm going to lean into uh, Carl Olson's Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead is a book that came out again this past year, published by Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute. So Anyhow, with that, (laughs) let us get into that question. How do we know that Jesus really rose from the dead? Let me first say this. You heard me speak to the question of the crucifixion in our study on 1 Corinthians. Right now, we are going through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and what do we read? But that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is what? A stumbling block a stumbling block to the Jews, because why would God die such a death? And yet, could we not say that that whole idea, that Christ's crucifixion is a stumbling block to to Jews and folly to Gentiles, is equal to the resurrection? What did Paul say later in his letter to the Corinthians? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. My friends, those three words, he is risen, are the most important three words of Christianity, because without the resurrection, without Christ rising from the dead, then the whole construct of Christianity collapses. That's what makes Christianity different. The resurrection is what makes Christianity altogether unique. So when I say 
how do we know Christ really rose from the dead is a top three question. Rightfully so, because if you can debunk that question, well, then you debunk Christianity. So certainly it is a question that has been asked, just not over these past few weeks, but also for the last 2,000 years. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, in his second volume of Jesus of Nazareth, says, the Christian faith stands or fails with the truth of the testimony that Christ is risen from the dead. Simply put, my friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event that divides Christianity from every other religion. He is risen. Those are some important words. As I have received the question about the resurrection and the validity of the resurrection um, over the past few weeks, this is a question that has been asked by many. And one of those many was a man by the name of Dr. Simon Greenleaf. He was a Harvard Law professor who lived in the late 18th, early 19th century. Now, if you were to go to his bio, you would find that he's penned a couple of books. And you might ask me, well, Joe, what are you talking about? He was an atheist or he was one who did not believe in the resurrection. Because when you look at his books, books titled The Testimony of the Evangelists Examined by the Rules of Evidence Administered in Courts of Justice, and the testimony of the evangelists, certainly it doesn't seem like Dr. Simon Greenleaf would be one who set out to debunk Christianity and the resurrection. But my dear friends, let me read to you the title of these books again by Dr. Simon Greenleaf. Again, Dr. Simon Greenleaf was a Harvard Law professor, right? So a man who knew how to talk about uh, rules of evidence. Listen to the titles of these books. The Testimony of the Evangelists Examined by the Rules of Evidence Administered in Courts of Justice and The Testimony of the Evangelists. Why do you think he wrote these books? Well, he wrote these books after he set out to debunk the resurrection. Well, Joe, it sounds like he is actually giving evidence to them. It doesn't sound like he's actually debunking Christianity. Well, that's my point, right? What did Dr. Simon Greenleaf discover? Well, when he set out to debunk the resurrection, in his mind's eye, he was going to gain evidence against Jesus Christ and against the resurrection. And in typical lawyer fashion, right, he was asking questions and then cross-examining those questions he was asking with the evidence that he had on his fingertips. And he was very systematic about it. He was very structured about it. One of the questions that he was asking was simply, if Jesus said, I promise you pain, I promise you suffering, I promise you trial, I promise you a great deal of struggle, now follow me. Why would the 12 follow him? Why would anyone follow anyone who promised such suffering? even if they promise joy, because on a human level, we don't gravitate towards suffering. You see what he was doing? He's asking these deeper questions. He's not only a lawyer, as a lawyer in the late 18th, early 19th century, he's going to be versed in the psychosis, psychology, right? So he's asking these questions. Why would they do this? And he was following the apostles post-resurrection and how they lived their lives. And he asked himself the question, did these 12 still follow him? 
Or did they, in the end, look at Jesus as just another nice guy? I mean, some people look at Jesus as a nice guy, or maybe a nicer guy than most nice guys, or maybe the nicest guy of all nicer guys who ever lived, like the nicest guy who ever lived, okay? He knows, and we all know, you don't die for the nicest guy who ever lived. You don't die for Santa Claus. You don't die for the Easter Bunny. No, you die if you have a reason to die, and ultimately for Dr. Simon Greenleaf, it was, if he's the Messiah, you have a reason to die. And so he followed these 12. And what did he discover, my friends? But that the 12 apostles were skinned to death, were stoned to death, were sawed to death, were burned to death, were beheaded to death, were axed in half to death, were clubbed to death. He started to ask new questions as he was discovering how these 12 apostles died. I mean, Bartholomew, skinned alive and beheaded. James the Lesser, stoned and clubbed to death. Andrew uh, the Apostle, crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. And when you really look at what happened with Andrew, that's fascinating. Because when he was tied upside down to an X-shaped cross, he was preaching to his spectators and as testimony right, as recorded testimony accounts, he actually was converting those who he was preaching to. How about Peter, the first pope, crucified upside down? He didn't feel that he was worthy to be crucified right side up like his Lord. We know that John was the one who was not martyred, the beloved disciple, and some say, well, he was the beloved disciple, so our Lord didn't want to put him through that. Well, that's silly. Martyrdom itself is a gift, right? Because you're sharing in Christ's crucifixion in the most profound way. Now, what's interesting with John is that he was, in fact, and we forget this, thrown into boiling oil, and he didn't die. (laughs) He didn't die. He was thrown into boiling oil, and he didn't die. Think about that for a second, right? And again, witnesses recorded this. Brothers and sisters, why do you think the beloved disciple was sent to the island of Patmos? He freaked the emperor out. Who is this guy? I don't want to have to deal with him. So he exiled him to Patmos, of course, where he penned the book of Revelation, all in God's divine providence, right? How about Thomas, St. Thomas, death by spear, James the Greater, beheaded, Philip, crucified, Matthew. Uh, Now, there's varying accounts here. Uh, Maybe the most accurate is that he was burned to death. Jude Thaddeus, various accounts here, probably the most verifiable, speak to him being sawed to death or axed to death. Simon the Zealot, sawed and axed to death. I mean, brothers and sisters, when you look at these apostles and how they died, and then you put it into the larger context of why they died, okay? You should be asking new questions. If Jesus was just not a nice guy and just not nicer than most nice guys, but even the nicest of all nicer guys, you wouldn't die for him. Not like this, not this way. Jesus is more than just a great teacher. Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. No, my friends, as Dr. Simon Greenleaf concluded, Jesus... (laughs) is the Messiah. Now, my friends, think about what I just said and go back to Dr. Simon Greenleaf's books. The testimony of the evangelist examined by the rules of evidence administered in courts of justice. 
and then the testimony of the evangelists. <laughs> now you know why he wrote those books. Because as he was examining and cross-examining, as he was making his case, at least initially, for this thesis he had that Jesus couldn't possibly rise from the dead, well, in the end, the only case he was really making was Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And this is what he bore testimony to. This is why it's so important to just roll up our sleeves, work in the tall grass, and start doing our homework, right? Now, as it relates to the question that comes up quite often about mythology, you know, we, we cannot trust the accuracy of the Gospels as the Gospels aren't actual biographies but works of mythology. We have to really think about what we're asking here. You know, skeptics who make this sort of statement are not, in fact, usually discussing historical evidence but in so many ways appealing to more of a materialistic philosophical belief that miracles are not possible, and so the Gospels must be mythology and, and legends as they depict miracles, most notably the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, to discredit the testimony of those first 12 is to discredit history. History does not spring forth from non-event, my friends. So what's going on here, I believe, is, is something much more than just an unproven mythology to discredit such testimony simply because it runs contrary to one's presuppositions is not rational, but in so many ways deeply biased. You know, the criticism of the Christian who believes in the resurrection is that he is biased. But my friends, how can you claim that one is biased if you yourself are at the same time biased? This is why we need to enter into the dialogue in its most classic sense, dialogic. Logic is the instrument to reason. Dia is too, right? So if you're going to discover truth, that truth that Jesus Christ talks about in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am absolute truth, you have to enter into that more natural dialogue. Not a trilogue, but a dialogue. Not a monologue, but a dialogue, okay? And then, and really only then, within the form of that listen and response dialogue, will you discover truth. Because it is when we get our questions answered that we begin to take ownership of what we are saying. And sometimes, if you're a faithful listener, you, you know what I'm about to say, sometimes the best answer to a question is what? But another question, to make sure that the person who's asking the first question is really taking ownership of what they are saying. So, Again, this is uh, very important in this discussion on the resurrection. Now, something else here that uh, Carl Olson draws out, and I think this to be very important, is that recent decades have really seen a renewed recognition that the four Gospels should be taken seriously as historical texts, especially mindful of the first century Jewish context. Uh, I know a point I have labored on extensively. And not because they are accepted by Christians as canonical, but because they are the earliest and best sources that exist, right? As the New Testament scholar Craig Keener points out, contrary to what some modern writers assume, the bias of the gospel writers doesn't mean their biographies of Christ are novelistic or fictional. All ancient historians have a certain bias. In fact, 
all historians, period, have a bias. If, in fact, by that we mean coming from a certain perspective and holding specific beliefs about the subject at hand. The key here is recognizing, acknowledging one's perspectives, or what some scholars have called horizons. And by horizons, we mean assessing information, analyzing text, and reaching conclusions. In short, my friends, it's important to know that many New Testament scholars today accept that the Gospels are forms of ancient biography and that the authors sought to present what they knew about Jesus, whether it was firsthand or from another witness, in a reliable, truthful way. Even when critics say things like the authors of the Gospels and the early disciples weren't objective enough and were easily confused, especially when it comes to the resurrection, we have to dig deeper and appreciate and the importance of what is going on in the inner dynamics of what is being recorded in the gospel. Here, uh, Carl Olson reflects into C.S. Lewis in his work, Surprised by Joy, because C.S. Lewis reflected on how he had to recognize and overcome what he called this chronological snobbery. I love that phrase. If there's a phrase for you to remember this evening, it's chronological snobbery a phrase coined by C.S. Lewis. He described this snobbery as the uncritical acceptance, and note that word uncritical, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account itself discredited. One example of this is how many skeptics dismiss the first Christians as naive or gullible simpletons, right? Yet the New Testament writers were well aware of such criticisms, were they not? And this is where we ourselves have to be critical. If you were to go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, what does Peter say there? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Brothers and sisters, almost 2,000 years later, we need you to take stock in what Peter is saying here, because there is that temptation. If we find ourselves struggling with the resurrection, or we are atheistic, to just look at the resurrection as something mythological. No, there's something so much more going on, and, and Peter was stressing what he was an eyewitness to. How about Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, the opening verses to the Gospel of Luke? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. The phrase from the beginning, is a specific claim that the eyewitnesses had been present throughout the events from the appropriate commencement of the author's history onwards, right? In other words, Luke was intent on using primary sources, not secondary sources, primary sources, people who saw and experienced firsthand what he recorded in his gospel. Evidence, my friends. When Dr. Simon Greenleaf, that Harvard Law professor, set out to debunk Christianity and the resurrection. What led him to discover truth is that he wasn't biased. 
it wasn't so subjective that he ruled out what was objective. No, he leaned into the evidence and the evidence became overwhelming, overwhelming. What else here? Well, what does John say? How does John conclude his gospel? Well, he concludes it with an emphatic statement. This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Testimony is true. But there are also many other things which Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And we could add here, just as significant is how the Gospels describe the reaction of the disciples to news of the empty tomb. Earlier when I was talking about the inner dynamics of what is being recorded, those dynamics, how not only the apostles but those followers of Jesus reacted to Jesus in of themselves become a kind of piece of evidence, if you will, because it kind of goes against the strain of how one would try to write myth. What do we read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 8? And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So afraid, in fact, that they said nothing to anyone. Who would believe them? Why would anyone believe them? When you're trying to make a case for something that doesn't exist, this isn't the kind of thing that you talk about, right? Again, for Dr. Simon Greenleaf, this is the evidence that builds against his resurrection? No, for his resurrection. He was asking the right questions because why? He was unbiased. Sure enough, when Mary Magdalene told the grieving disciples that Jesus had appeared to her the following morning, what do we read? Three verses later, Mark 16, verse 11, they did not believe her, <laughs> right? What do we read in the gospel, Luke chapter 24, verse 11? The account given seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them, right? <laughs> Think about this. You don't write history that way. You don't write myth that way, okay? So, my friends, the disbelief of the disciples is, by any measure, both understandable and embarrassing. And ultimately, the criterion of embarrassment indicates that no one had apologetic reason to invent the testimony of these women. It in of itself becomes a proof, a proof that something else was going on. Now, to use the word proof and or proven certainly leads to another big observation. The resurrection cannot be proven in any way. It must be accepted entirely on faith. Now, certainly, uh, to some extent, there is some truth behind this statement because in the end, faith is what? Believing in something that no eye has seen or no ear has heard. But in the end, is it just faith or is there something else to be had? What did John Paul II say? We contemplate truth, just not with faith, but faith and reason. As Carl Olson reflects, to carefully examine this question, there are many other forms of evidence and proof, historical, philosophical, and even theological. Because while theology is faith-seeking understanding, that seeking understanding applies our what? Reason. Okay, again, faith and reason. One challenge is that many modern people are so dismissive of ancient testimony and are so prone to view 
history as kind of a hazy land which very little of anything can be known, we don't really entrust ourselves to it. But the testimony of the early Christians is evidence of something astounding. Uh, Richard Bauchman, author of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, argues, trusting such testimony, and I love this, is not an irrational act of faith that leaves critical rationality aside. It is, on the contrary, the rationally appropriate way of responding to authentic testimony. Gospels understood as testimony are the entirely appropriate means of access to the historical reality of Jesus. All history and knowledge relies in some way on what? Testimony. And my friends, how do we build up testimony? By building up trust. Where does trust come from? But by bearing witness. And so when we bear testimony to something or someone, we are doing what? Witnessing to something or someone. Where does the word witness come from? Well, it comes from the Greek martyria. It is where we get the word martyr. Why was Dr. Simon Greenleaf so influenced by the 12 apostles? Because they gave their lives over for Jesus Christ. They were martyred. Well, at least 11 of the 12, right? Or I should say 10 of the 12, of course. Matthias replaced Judas. He too was martyred, so we could say 11 of the 12, huh? They were martyred. They bore witness. They bore testimony. And in the courtroom, that over whelmed him. And here I'm speaking to the courtroom of his heart, right? And so when you talk about testimony, yeah, you're talking about building up trust, building up that sense of confidence in someone. And the 12 apostles, by giving their lives to Jesus Christ, should build up confidence and trust that, in fact, they were bearing witness to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that yes, he did truly, really, actually rise from the dead. Amen to that. Now I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. You know, to talk about the resurrection and to not talk about new life would be a failure on my part. So let me close with that point, especially during the Easter season, that we are born to be a people of the resurrection. We are, in Paul's words, a new creation in Christ because of the resurrection. So hopefully this Easter season we are entering into what the resurrection season is all about, this new life in Christ, this new sense of belonging to Christ. I live differently now. This should be the thing that should be on the forefront of our minds and hearts. And yes, certainly he calls us to use um, our faith and reason to contemplate the great mystery of the resurrection, that indeed we might go deeper in this new life that he has called us to. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.com.
www.ghostbusters.org. <laughs>